Thank you for coming Thank you for coming out. Welcome. My name is Dubs. Ah! <laughs> my name is Dubs Weinblatt. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I'm so excited to be here for our fifth season of the Thank You For Coming Out podcast. In 2015, I founded the queer improv show, Thank You For Coming Out, or TIFCO as we call it. And it is now one of the longest running queer improv shows in New York City. During the improv show, our storytellers would share their coming out stories and then our improvisers would bring them to life. The podcast is a little different. We still have our short, our storytellers share their stories, but instead of folks improvising, we talk about them. And I'm literally wiggling in my seat because I'm so excited about my guest with me here today. Sammy Ray, she, they, is the front man for Sammy Ray and the Friends, a Brooklyn-based collective whose sound is rooted in classic rock, folk, and funk, and sprinkled with soul and jazz. Complete with a rhythm section, two saxophones, keyboards, and plenty of percussion, Sammy Ray and the Friends have delivered their high-energy, spirited, and unrestrained shows to sold-out audiences around the U.S. and Europe. They are currently gearing up to headline an NYC summer stage show in Central Park this June, and will continue the party on their world tour this fall. Sammy, hello. Hello. (laughs) That was such a special (laughs) intro. Hello. Oh my God. I am like bouncing. I did, you know, do you ever do the like warm up where you're like one, two, three, four, and you like shake your hands up to eight and then you like low, like, and then you go up to. Yeah. Didn't we all come from theater? Of course I've done that. Okay, great. So (laughs) I did that right before our, to try to get some of my energy out. But anyways, how the heck are (laughs) you? I am just wonderful, Dubs. I'm having, I'm sitting in my uh, little writing studio. We recently kind of, uh, my partner and I recently kind of renovated the apartment and now I have my own little room with my piano and a lovely window and my plants. And this is actually, it, the idea was a writing studio slash office. And this is the first time I've taken an interview from my own little space in my house. So I'm feeling really great sitting in the sun talking to you. That's amazing. I was I actually was going to say before that I noticed the sun like naturally lighting you and it's gorgeous. What, what a treat. Oh, thanks. You're literally, you're on my windowsill and I'm sitting on my little meditation mat in the window. It's great. It's awesome. I love that. And and you're based in Brooklyn. I am. Yeah. Question mark. Okay, great. Same. Yeah. uh, Well, we don't need to get into specifics, but. (laughs) (laughs) What do you want my social security number? (laughs) I mean, if you're you're offering it, just kidding. Um, So Sammy, we all have multiple coming out stories we have multiple coming into self stories and Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear from you one of those one of those moments or some of them yes I would love that um so it's I can kind of pinpoint two moments and when I knew this podcast was coming up I was like how am I going to figure out how to put them into kind of one statement so I knew that I was queer from the time I was a child, a a little one. And like watching Disney movies, it was things like, there's that moment in Aladdin where like Jasmine's alone on her balcony. And I remember this feeling of not being able to stop looking at her. And as a child, you're just like, oh, I feel really bad for her and la la la. And then as I started to watch more like kids media, I was just like, it's that, it is that, that I really resonate with these strong female characters, but there's something deeper there. And I go through puberty and it starts to make a little more sense. And then I went to an all girls Catholic high school, which is a really bizarre place to be a queer woman. Um, And I grew up in a very small town. The, The school that I went to was very small town, kind of central Connecticut. And I moved to the Bronx when I was like 18, 19. I was 19, I think. Moved to the Bronx. I went there for school. That didn't stick. I was there for one semester and then I left and I moved to Brooklyn to form the band. But it was when I left my small town 
um, and moved to New York and I started to see in this melting pot, obviously, there were so many different ways that people were living their lives. And I was seeing queer folk very outwardly and confidently, authentically live their lives. And that's the first time that I realized, okay, I've known this thing about myself. What I didn't know is that I had permission to not just hide that and feel guilty about it. I have permission to be that in the real world and not just like alone at my house with my in my bedroom with my thoughts and my feelings, I have permission to kind of be open about that. Um, so I, I think that when I started to write music and be a little more visible, and I got myself a manager, and we started playing shows, I had I hadn't publicly come out to anyone, my family or the audience or anything. And I think that people were starting to catch a vibe. And the audience was calling me things like a queer icon and all this stuff. And I was really honored by that. But I still had that, I think, little bit of internalized homophobia, internalized small town thinking, internalized like faith driven thinking, where I had this moment of like, I need to stop being uncomfortable about these comments. And if that if there if anybody's calling me any kind of icon, why am I turning this away? This is who I am. And this is what this is. I think it's time that I'm a little public about this. And then my manager got this opportunity where there was a Pride Month panel um, hosted by Lululemon of all companies. And they had asked me if I wanted to speak on it. And at this point, I wasn't out to the audience. I wasn't out to my family or anything. And it was a couple months away. I was starting to get anxious about it. And at the time, that's kind of, we'll revisit that as a coming out moment um, in a second. But At the time I was falling in love with someone and I was falling in love with a man. And I had spent so many years dating women and not telling anybody about it. I wasn't telling my parents about it. It gave me a great deal of guilt. Um, And I was excited about the prospect of this person and The fact that he was a man, number one, wasn't really important to me. But what was important to me is that my family didn't celebrate this relationship for me unless I took an opportunity to tell them that I was queer and tell them that, you know, these friends that I brought home for Thanksgiving, you know, I dated these ladies. I've been this isn't the first time I'm falling in love and I don't want you to celebrate this moment for me if you can't do it being aware of how it plays into the bigger picture of my life. Um, And I just kind of got that vibe one day and I decided to FaceTime my dad. And I was just like, dad, I, you know, I wanted to tell you that it, which is funny. I I came out to my dad to tell him that I was dating a straight man, which Mm -hmm. is, but it was really, really, really important to me because I knew that my whole family was going to go, Oh, finally, you know, Sam's dating somebody when in reality, not finally, Sam's been dating people for years, but I want to take this opportunity of the first relationship I feel comfortable sharing with you to share about my other relationships. And and I knew somehow it was going to give me some sort of peace and like retroactive joy. I I couldn't really pinpoint it. Um, And I FaceTime my dad. He was the first person I came out to and he was a star. He was so supportive and so wonderful. It was a little bit of a journey and uh, why is this important now? Maybe that was a phase sort of thing with other members of my family. Um, And then there are other older members of my family who have just kind of found out about my queerness through, you know, they love to read about me. And since now I'm very open and about about it and they read interviews and that's kind of, I didn't have a formal coming out moment with them. But I distinctly remember at the start of this relationship that I was in, I really wanted to, does that make sense? I was like, I don't want you to celebrate this for me until you understand And it brought me a great deal of peace and I was very happy about it. Um, But still I wasn't out to the audience and I was only out to a few, a handful of family members. And I knew that me taking ownership over everybody online already calling me queer without me openly identifying as queer. I wanted to take ownership over that. So this speaking panel, this pride month panel um, came up and I was really, really stressed, really, really stressed because I knew I felt like a little bit of a baby gay. Cause even though I'd been, you know, gay in the shadows for so long. I knew that I was going to hear stories about people who were a little bit further along in their journey than me. And here I am at 25, just starting to talk about this. 
And I was the last in this line of folks that were on this talk panel and everybody was talking about their coming out stories was the moment you came out. And it got to me at the end and I was like, you know, um, I've never actually done that. I'm not sure how you all figured out what was going on and invited me here, but here I am and I'm queer and this is my coming out moment. And the audience like stood up and freaked out and was so excited. And I felt so much support from these strangers, which is that was the missing link. I needed to come to terms with myself. I needed to come to terms with my family and close friends. And then I needed to come to terms with the audience. And I was worried about how that was going to be received. And everybody stood up and I started crying. My mom was there. My mom was crying. That was nice because that was that was kind of an interesting coming out to her was interesting. And it was a really, really beautiful moment. And from that point forward, well, first of all, there started to be pictures of that event and clips of that event. So the audience started to know. But from that from that moment, um, I kind of came out in front of an audience and started to own it online, started to own it in interviews. And and then that was that. And and here we are. So very long winded story about my coming out. Um, You you mentioned something beautiful at the beginning, which was a coming into self moment is a way to phrase it. And that was that first year in New York for me, where I knew who I was, but I was afraid to be who I was. And my first year in New York, seeing people unabashedly be themselves, I spent that year coming into self and coming to terms with myself with myself. Um, But it wasn't until that moment where I started talking to my family, and then that pride event that I felt comfortable letting other people into this is who I am. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking back and kind of some of the the pieces that are rising and resonating for me is this idea about uh, the idea is one about permission to be self mm. and also um, just like the, 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 I don't know if the, if the fear of the unknown is the right way to say it, but it's just the the question mark of the unknown of like, how is, you know, insert whoever going to react? Um, yeah. Oh, the, yeah. And, and there that, were particular people in my brain for, for sure. Yeah. So I want to, I do want to like to to rewind and talk about this idea of permission, because I think at least for me in in coming into myself first as like a I also knew from like a very very young age that I was a queer person yeah I didn't know Mm. like how I was queer like I didn't have the I didn't know about gender identity I just knew that I liked girls and that people were calling me a girl and therefore I was gay um and didn't know that you could question what you were assigned at birth and not be that until later um right but it was so there was there I've had a lot of coming into self and still am having them. I I, I kind of think we as humans should constantly be having we should constantly have coming into self moments. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing more important in the entire world than peace with self and being who you are, which sounds like there's there's a lot that we try to do in this band and the kind of ethos that we have behind this band. There's a lot that we try to do, but we know it always kind of falls into two different things. One is uh be authentically yourself and there's so much that falls into that right and by you being authentically yourself and fearlessly yourself that's the easiest way and the most important way that you make the world a better place because you're contributing your joy out into the universe and you're also inspiring other people to be authentically themselves so that's how you make the world a better place so be authentically yourself is on one end and the other end is simple enough for a kid to access. These are two big things that we like often play with. We don't, don't overcomplicate it, you know? Um, and even when in writing songs, I often give myself the prompt of like, this chorus is too heavy. If a kid can't access it, then not everybody can access it. And I want it to be accessible to everybody. Um, so when you bring them together, you know, simple enough that anyone can access it. And this big, huge thing of like, be yourself, make the world a better place. What we get in the middle is like joy. That's it, right? Everybody can access joy and joy comes from being authentically yourself. So kind of how we operate in this band is if it's not joyful, we're not doing it. If it doesn't if it doesn't bring joy to us, we're not going to do it. And if it's not going to bring the audience joy, then we're not going to do it. 
as like a little checks and balances system you have going yeah, on. Totally. Um, and so I, I feel like so in thinking about permission, when when you, when we, when other queer people find the 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 ways in which we want to show up in the world that feel authentic to ourselves yeah it then it gives like you're saying like it gives permission to other people so it's like to be themselves and to show like all the different possibilities that exist in the world of how we can be and I think that's Mm -hmm. and what I love about what you just said is that um just this idea of when you're when you're yourself not only do you feel joy but you bring joy to other people yeah um and it's just a I, I feel like a lot of times we forget to look for the joy I, I um I have been for the last 21 days been posting every day my joy du jour and finding one thing that ah, day that has brought nice. me joy because it's important to like take a moment to be intentional about especially with what's happening all around the country right now yes. with all the anti-LGBTQ legislation, it's so important to actually take moments to appreciate what brings us happiness. Yes, it is. It, I'm also proud of you for doing that in a public way online that other people can say that, that other people can see that and consider what what you're talking about. I want to, you just kind of sparked a, a thing in my head where we're talking about how you give other people permission to yeah. experience joy when you feel joy. There's this other side of it where especially in the conversation of queer joy, where there are, I've run into folks who are intimidated by that joy. Mm-hmm. And yes. so there's kind of two things. One is to give yourself permission to stand in your authentic self and express yourself and experience joy. And the other thing is to uh, decide to be unconcerned about how your joy is digested by other people. And that sometimes is even tougher because you can be in this place of I'm right with myself. And then as soon as somebody else comes into the picture and your, you know, your experience is being informed by its projection, it's their lack of joy, right? So if somebody is meeting you in your joy and that comes out from them as resentment or lack of understanding. That's what it is. It's resentment and it's a lack of understanding. That's them not having done enough work to feel confident in their own joy. And that's their work. That's not, that's not your work. There's one step where it's you being who you are and deciding to be who you are. And then there's another step, which is you deciding to not be hurt by the way that your you-ness will be interpreted by others, which is, it is tough because the world that we live in, the time that we live in, the country that we live in, we are so often met with, you know, it's not just you're going to be looked at funny anymore, or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, you're going to lose your job. You're going to go to jail. It's this ridiculous, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, We're moving backwards. We're moving into the past, which is terrifying and horrifying because the younger generations are coming up and they're being raised with this, you know, be yourself. You're allowed to be yourself. I've, you know, that conversation's different, but at the same time, there's this conversation that's like moving us backwards. And I have a lot of hope. I have young people in my life, one of whom is queer, and I'm so proud of them, so excited for them. Um, they're 18, and that's and they've known for a while, and I was the first person they talked to about it. And I have so much hope and so much like excitement and joy for them, but I'm also afraid because one of us is going to win, right? The people, and it's going to be, or maybe not concretely, but it's always going to be this struggle. One of us is going to be louder in every conversation those who choose joy and choose to live authentically and contribute to the world that way. And those who say that, you know, that joy is uh, not right, fall in line. And for the most part, joy wins, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) For the most part, but we need more of that. We need more people sharing what tiny moments of joy can look like in their life so that they can start it, it, it. So, so they can start looking for it in their life, which is what you're doing online. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it, right, just to think about it as, like, a a winning and a losing uh, feels really scary, and. It does, it's, it's very, very, very scary, it's very scary. 
Um, I re- I mean, there were definitely moments um, as I was finding myself as a trans person uh, where I was intimidated by other trans people's joy. And I, I like would unfollow people because they were sharing their joy and their happiness and their transition and their healthcare and whatever, you know, whatever they were doing to affirm who they are. And yeah. I, mean, I never said anything to them. I wasn't harassing them, but internally I was like, I, like you were saying, like, I wasn't ready to have that conversation with myself. And so seeing someone else ready Ooh. and celebrating and yeah. sharing was too, was like overload for me. And I had to unfollow them because I, I, I did resent them. And I was like, well, why can't I do that? And I'm scared to do that. And why do they get to do that? And I don't. And so. Oh my God, that resonates so hard. Yeah. So hard. It's tough. I remember like there were, again, I was from like small town Connecticut and I went to this Catholic all girls school. So there was this, or, and I had a great time. It taught me how to be a wonderful leader. And I just need to say that. Like I learned a lot about being a good leader and I was a good student, la la la. But it was my being a good student and being so concerned about, you know, impressing the sisters, um, there was always this underlying anxiety that I was, and I was dating somebody at that school. And we knew that there were other girls who were dating and we didn't even feel safe to talk to each other about it because Mm -hmm. there was like the actual threat of expulsion. And then what do I do? You know, then what, then what's going to happen to my parents? Like it was a very real kind of threat. And I remember seeing like, public school kids who didn't have to worry about that and I would get mad or like I remember feeling oh here's a funny one I remember um in my little research like online in my house in the summertime or like after my homework was done I would learn about I would learn about iconic queer cinema and like cult queer cinema and then I would act I would like actively not watch the movie Mm. like I did, I would, I learned about like Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, and then actively didn't watch that movie because I actively didn't want to see queer people who had permission to be themselves. Yeah. Um, I remember being like, oh, one day I'll get two hours to myself and figure out how to rent, but I'm a cheerleader for $2.99 without using my dad's credit card and not get caught. And like one day I'll watch it, but I'm not ready for that. It's nice to know that movie exists, but I'm not ready for it. You know, yeah. I, it, I was obsessed with Freddie Mercury. I was obsessed with Elton John, but I wouldn't give myself permission to put a Freddie Mercury poster in my bedroom because then it was like two in my face and I'd be sad. And also my folks would find out and I wasn't ready for that. You know, yeah, that totally, do. totally, totally, totally resonates that a hundred percent resonates. And even when I was like when I did get to the city and start when I, when I was like actively dating women, it was always this hang up between us where I was still really uncomfortable about holding hands in public and that sort of thing. And more than once I had somebody I was dating at the time be like, you know, this is, you, you this is, it, this isn't a cute look on you. If you don't, if you don't want to be here, if you're not ready for this, let's not be here. But like, I can't move through the world with a half present girlfriend. Like, you know, we can go to dinner together. It's okay. Um, so yeah, yeah, that, that, that really resonated. That really resonated what you said, like actively unfollowing people who, because I, I, I wasn't not mad at their joy, intimidated by their joy because I wasn't ready to stand in that joy. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. a me problem. Again, that's a me problem. That's not an M problem. So when, right. when, when, when folks run into, when I run into that now in the world, um, and it happens quite often when we're in particular states on tour, I, I don't let that get to me anymore because I was there and I understand why they're, they're not ready to just let me live my damn life. <laughs> Let us live our damn lives. We're not I just want to live my damn life. life. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I'm really curious to to unpack a little bit, like how you dated someone in your high school. If you were, if you, like, how did you signal to each other? Like, let's, like, we have crushes. Like, wasn't there an element? I don't want to put like words in your mouth, but I would imagine like for me, like elements of fear of, 
maybe I'm reading the signals wrong and then they're going to out me or because that happened to me in high school. Like I almost said things to people who I thought were queer and then never did because I was Mm. so terrified of me thinking that I got it wrong and then them outing me. Um, So I never said anything to any of them. Turns out 20 years later, all of them were queer. I was right. But la um, la la. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, so I'm curious for you, like, how did you make those connections to act to like take it to the next level? What a beautiful question. And Thank also, you. I I just want to share a little story that you had piggybacking off the story that you had said about like all of your friends are you found out later that all of them were queer. Yeah. So when I was in high school and we could go into this for a really long time, but we won't. Um, I I've diagnosed now as an adult. Faith was never a huge part of my coming up. And then when I got to this Catholic school, um, I, I it. It's it was a very simple formula. I noticed that all the girls that had friends and were well liked by the sisters were the diehard super duper Catholics. And so I decided to make Catholicism my entire identity because there's this overarching theme of like everybody's welcome. But, you know, like when you get into it, it's everybody's welcome except for the following people. Right. And in health class, we remember we talked about homosexuality and that was like devastating. But I decided to make. Catholicism, my whole identity, because it was almost like it gave, I had this thing of like, if I'm this good enough, it makes this not matter. And if I'm this good enough, it's a good enough mask for people to not assume this sort of thing. Um, And I went so hard that I was spending every weekend at this like retreat center an hour and a half away from my house as soon as I could drive. And I have a handful of friends now where, uh, that are still from that, you know, when we were in high school, we're still friends and we talk about it. And we joke that, uh, 33% of us of the kids who came through that program grew up and did the thing where they get married at 22. They have three kids by 25 and they work for the church. Another third of us are general queer folk kind of moving through the world. And that's where I fall in. And then the other third are act like trans folks who are out there like trailblazing and like founding organizations to help people recover, queer folk recover from time in the church, which is so interesting. The church kid to queer adult pipeline is enormous. And what I've tried to diagnose over time or what I've tried to figure out and I've diagnosed over time is there's that big everybody's welcome thing and you go there and there's unfortunately this system where it's like especially in catholicism which is so doctrine oriented it's like there's always a prescription it's like 10 hail marys and five our fathers and then you're good and so there's this place where you can all belong and there's this place to like there's this way to just cancel out and suddenly be good and i think that's really attractive to queer teens. But anyway, I, we, we've noticed the exact same thing. Like literally almost every single one of us was a queer kid, didn't feel safe to communicate about it with each other in that environment. And then as adults, when we got a little further away from it, kind of found each other again and bonded on those things. And then a handful of them are parents of six and work for the church and they're 30. But anyway, in to, to, to go back to your question, um, in high school, I had a bestie, best, best, bestie friend who I had never had a female friendship like that in my life. I had never really had female friends until high school. I was always kind of the like running around outside with the neighborhood kids and by nature of the fact that all the neighborhood kids were boys and also what I gravitated towards in terms of middle school and elementary school and how I just lived my life. I had a lot of male friends and I had never really had a lady best friend. I had always had male best friends. And then when I got to high school, I had a couple of close lady friends and I had this one bestie lady friend where I started to realize something's different here. It's not just that we're best friends. And I didn't have much of a gauge to be like, this is normal female friendship or it's not. And then as I started to make more female friends over the course of that like year, I realized there's, I'm not reading it wrong. There's something going on here. Um, And then we, I have this weird memory where she was like, 
I bought you a bracelet and we weren't allowed to wear bracelets. We weren't allowed to wear too much stuff in our hair or whatever. And I had this weird memory where she was like, I bought you a bracelet one day at lunch and she gave me this bracelet and it was just a rainbow beaded bracelet. And I was like, wow, I love this a lot. And I didn't know what to say. And she said, I have one too. And she had hers on and I had mine. And then we immediately had to like take them off and put them in our backpacks. But that was like this moment where I think she took the initiative to be like, we we don't even feel safe to talk about it with each other, but let's acknowledge that this is what it is. And then it started to change a little bit. And we uh, we were both in the theater program and there was a day after rehearsal that um we were like sitting on the stage waiting to go home and we kissed and it was my favorite moment ever and a very special queer awakening for me it was my first like real kiss and then from that point forward we were we were girlfriends but we were girlfriends in and we talked about that we would talk about the fact that we were dating but clandestine like we were still with our parents i'm going over her her house she's coming over my house or you know after rehearsal we're going to get dinner and wait for you guys and we did a really good job of maintaining that we were just two friends at dinner waiting to get picked up to school and not that we were on a date it's sad and this is a trauma tra- a trauma that i continue to process at this day is that was one of the t- deepest love relationships I've ever been in. And there's only so much joy and growth you can do in a relationship like that when you are completely hiding it from the outside world and there's nobody there to celebrate with you because then we'd have to turn it off, right? Like parents would show up and we'd have to turn it off. We would go to a friend's party and we'd have to turn it off. and it was sad that constant switch was really was really painful and i'm not proud of this at all but there came a point where she was like that's i can't i don't want to do this anymore like i want to be in love with you like we're you know well into our teens at this point and she's like i want to hold your hand when we're going to class i want to take you to prom i want to talk to my parents about you i want you to meet my grandma like i want to get into this and um i was really afraid of the narrative i was being fed by the church and also by the administration at the school which was like this is just not something that happens we girls don't date especially not here and we've never had two girls go to prom together ever and i'm very proud of her for having made the uh, so that was ultimately the moment where i was like I can't, I'm not ready to be public about this yet. I'm too afraid. I was too much of a goody two shoes. Thank God I hardened up, but this is over. I can't do this anymore. And we went our separate ways. And I'm very, very sad about that. But I was so proud of her for coming to me who was, I mean, that's a relatively, that's an emotionally abusive relationship where she was just like, I don't want to play these games anymore. And if you're not willing to be, open about this and let's walk through this together and let's break down these walls for the first time that we know of at this school and in this environment, then I'm out. And I was like, well, I can't do that. And she was like, I'm out. And that's how it ended. And I'm not proud of that at all, but I learned my lesson there. You know, I'd never go back to, I, I, I'll never go back to that again. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's major, major. It's just major. Everything you just said is major, right? Like your first. (laughs) It's sad. It's a very, it's a very sad story. It's a very sad story. The first time I was in love, I was in love really, 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 really hard. And it was beautiful until somebody else was in the room. And then, and then, uh, and then it wasn't, and that was sad. That is sad. And also, I hope that you, with some time and distance, are able to cut yourself some slack and know like yeah. how, how challenging a moment and moments that is and that you were doing the best you could like in the present yeah. moment. 
And I was, but I let everybody's voice be bigger than my own internal voice and bigger than her voice. And if she was the person I cared more about than anybody in the world, her voice should have been loudest and it wasn't. But it's really hard when in my brain, I just wanted to say the man. What I mean by the man is like the school I was at, this like very rigorous school and also uh, the church. It's really hard when those voices just by nature of what they are, are bigger, right? Mm -hmm. And I was kind of beat into fear. And we see that nowadays with what's going on in the government, right? It's so sad because I know a lot of queer folk are being like, like beat down into fear. And so they just give up, like I gave up. Yeah, it's, it's really tough. And I, and I would imagine too, then you, you, you know, once you parted ways, you having to grieve that relationship privately, like you couldn't, because no, know why you were grieving because it wasn't a public relationship. But I, I would imagine that that was also a challenge. It was. And actually that was the moment where I think people caught on because Mm. we completely like weren't friends anymore and we were attached at the hip. And I think that, uh, that I think, I think that was the moment that people caught on because things started to change a little bit. And I think it was a moment of our friends being like, those two were attached at the hip. Those two were together every day and every night. Those two were never apart from each other. Those two were obsessed with each other. Now they don't even talk to each other. And we didn't have a, everybody was like, did you have a fight? Like, what did you fight about? And we didn't think I, 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 it was my responsibility. I didn't think that through enough. I didn't have like, oh, we fought over this. Just suddenly we didn't talk anymore. And I think that's when our friends started to go up. This looks like a breakup, duh. And yeah, I had to I had to grieve that privately. I think maybe I had one friend who was in the loop and still wasn't happy about it. And I didn't feel safe to bring, you know, I'm really hurting because we broke up, even to her. I didn't share it with anybody. Yeah. That's so tough. Yeah, it was tough. Yeah. Um, but it, I mean, I think you said even that you learned from that and it was a big lesson, which is, you know, it's all we can do. Like, you know, we, we do the best we can. And then ultimately because we're humans, sometimes we fall short of where we want ourselves to be. And then how do we show up differently the next time? Yeah. I love to learn. I love learning. And sometimes even retroactively, I learn things you know, I like that, that whole experience, that whole relationship continues to teach me lessons to this day. I have this sort of like mentality that I've adopted in maybe the last year as an adult, which is like when things are really, really sad, when I'm really sad, something really terrible has happened, or it seems like there's no, uh, joy to take away like my first is like let me find joy in this moment let me try to find the joy and then if i can't find any joy and it's just a really terrible thing and try to think about okay well what did i learn there has to be something that i've learned um and unfortunately i couldn't do that in the moment all i could do was like be really sad and like 17 and like just sit in it but again it continues to teach me things now and with any big sad in my life, either retroactively, once I've distanced myself from it a little bit, or in the moment, there's always something to be learned. And sometimes it's a sad lesson, mm-hmm. but you learn something. So you're not where you started. And that's what matters, right? Uh, I think you'll appreciate my tattoo, which says learn from everything. <laughs> Wait, that's crazy. Oh, um, my God. Little story about that is do you know, the the quotable cards are like the square cards that have those random quotes on it? Yes. Yes, um, I do. I am a quotable with the quote, learn from everything. This was like 2014 uh, when it came out. Um, oh, cool. And so it's discontinued now, but I still have some private stock if you want me to send you some. Um, oh, wow. That's like, so cool. It's like a card and a journal and a wall hang and a magnet. So we can talk. And I, if, you, if you're interested, I can send it. I to would you. love to. Oh, my God. That's my whole thing. I would yeah. love that. Um, How cool. interesting. I just submitted it to Quotable and I was like, I want to be a Quotable. How about learn from everything? And they were like, yeah, we'll take it. 
Um, yes. Well, take 20. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love but I mean, it. It was born from a similar uh, moment of uh, going through a breakup. And I was like, what's the good that I got from this relationship? I learned a lot of new music. What's the, like, what else, what else did I learn? Like I had to oh, yeah. find the lesson for it to, to feel less painful. Um, and but I think, I don't know, sometimes it's hard to find a lesson and maybe it takes years to it find is. it. Yeah. I, I'm what you just said reminded me of, I, I, there was later down the line, I was in another relationship, which was very manipulative and I shouldn't have been in it. And I was in it for way longer than I, I should have been for a number of reasons. And I remember coming out of that and being like, okay, first assignment, figure out what I learned. And I remember being like, I didn't really learn anything. I'm disappointed in myself. And then mm. what be, what was revealed to me later was I learned it at the bare minimum. I learned that I can't be treated that way. Yeah. Um, and that was it. And it took me a while to find that. And it can be that simple. It can be, or like what you said, like I learned about this new artist that they tipped me off to. And that's great too. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always, there's always something in there, even like, uh, eight, you know, year long year and a half relationship that like really brought me to my lowest point I still learn something even if all I learned was you can't be treated like that you well, know I'm gonna, yeah I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that's a huge lesson to know how like to not be treated that way right and to not put yourself in that yeah. position again that feels pretty big to me it's huge least. it's huge I think I refer to it as small because it's almost like it was right under my nose. Oh, like I, I was like, what did I learn? You know? And then said it, it, it's simple is an easier way to say it. I see. Like when I tried to stop looking for these big lessons and all that, I was like, Oh, it was right under my nose the whole time. You just can't be treated like that. Great. Yeah. Next. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, okay. I want to talk about, well, we just, we broached the idea of artists and music. So I'm going to use that as a transition into, your music which is how I learned about you is uh, mm. I can't remember what state I think I was listening to Wolf Peck's radio and you came up um, oh, love them love so good so good um Beyond. so like your music brings me joy and is incredible Thanks. and I'm I love it deeply Thanks. um so before I ask you specific things about your music I want to I was listening, I listened to Kick It To Ya all the time. And I observed in the second chorus, it sounds like you're smiling. Okay, go off. All right, like, listening. I just want to know <laughs> if, I want to know if that's true. Like, can, yes. can you hear a difference? And okay, tell me everything. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it was intentional. And okay. I do that sometimes very intentionally. Um I'm in the booth and I'm like, I'm not, I will intentionally go smile. Like I have to deliver this with a smile and you can just hear it cause you're a human and you're used to what it sounds like when somebody's smiling or laughing, but also like quite simply and like anatomically, like I'm not delivering with my face the way I would typically engage my face to deliver lines. I'm, I'm delivering it with, my face engaged in a smiles. My vowels sound different. My consonants sound different. And I'm using my, I'm using my lungs differently. I'm using my breath differently. Like, yeah, it's totally intentional. I've, I've done that all throughout our music. There's, and then the opposite side is like closer to you. Um, we're really getting to some like broody stuff. That's our most recent single. And it's like not quite a breakup song, but it's got that like, how could you energy? And very intentionally, I made sure that I was frowning and staring at a particular point while I was singing. You have to be expressive in your, in it, that's the missing link sometimes in really great songs to be really great songs that continue to, be impressive is that delivery like you have to be intentional about delivery you have to so yeah that's a cool it's nice that you noticed that yeah I was was excited to ask you about it because I was like I love that so much I rewound it just to make sure I wasn't imagining it and I wasn't so I wasn't you (laughs) you love it you you know it all across and you can hear it I don't know why the first example that just came to me is 
Shania Twain, she doesn't go, let's go, girls. She goes, let's go, girls. And you yeah. can hear, like, you can hear that her face is a different shape. It's intentional mm-hmm. delivery. Let's go, girls. <laughs> I love that. Um, so how how did you, like, get into creating music? How is that? What's your kind of, like, a, like a Cliff's Notes of how you became... Sammy Ray and the Friends. Um, I, in terms of becoming a musician and a songwriter, and I tell this story all the time because it's there's really one moment I can pinpoint. But when I was like twelve, um, I did grow up in a crazy musical household. Like my dad played acoustic guitar a little bit in high school and college and then kind of just like there was always an acoustic around and then at some point we sold it for rent or whatever and it was like the radio was always playing so what was ever whatever was on the radio and then there was a few favorites that my folks had and it was like Bruce Springsteen, John Cougar Mellencamp, Fleetwood Mac and then like randomly Garth Brooks and I was hearing that all the time but not I like I it's funny because I talk to a lot of musicians now as adults and, and people are like, yeah, when I was 10, my dad was like, it's time for you to hear Dark Side of the Moon. And when I was 11, my dad was like, it's time for you to hear Stop Making Sense. And it was just like there was a little bit of music around the house. But then when I was 12, for some reason, I don't know why, but God bless him, because it changed my whole life. My dad was like, come in here and watch this. And he was watching uh, Bruce Springsteen on VH1 Storytellers, which if nobody remembers it, was this program where A-list artists would come in with one instrument and they would play songs and go line by line talking about exactly what their process was um, in writing that song. And Bruce opened with Blinded by the Light, which, funny story, is um, not a lot of people know this, but Born to Run was never number one. Born in the USA was never number one. The only number one song Bruce ever had was Blinded by the Light, and it was the Manfred Mann version. So Bruce Springsteen wrote Blinded by the Light, sold it to Manfred Mann, and that version popped off. But anyway, he opened with that, and at first listen, it's nonsense syllables. Like he's just, it sounds like a Dr. Seuss poem. He's not really saying anything. And then I listened to him go line for line exactly what, it meant for him. So he opens like madmen, drummers, bummers, and Indians in the summer. And I forget who exactly it was, but he was like, first line, madmen, drummers, and bummers. That was my drummer friend. We called him madman Jimmy Lopez or whatever. And I was thinking about him in this moment, Indians in the summer. That was my childhood t-ball team. And I looked forward all year to playing on that team. And then he goes on and continues to like he just there's all these little analogies and weird little turns of phrases that mean so much to him and i had this moment of like oh my god it's secret code and i love it like in my 12 year old brain i was like i can tell stories about my really intense 12 year old feelings in secret code and I can get my feelings out, but nobody's gonna know what I'm talking about unless I explain it to them. Can you imagine the power? And that was that that was my that was literally my thinking was like I can get my feelings out in a way where I can get them out, but I can write a song about somebody I don't like at school and they're not gonna know it's about them unless I were to explain it to them. That's I my power, right? And I was very excited about that. Um, so I, that's when I knew I wanted to be a songwriter and I started writing songs. Then I started writing songs when I was 12, I started trying to record songs with anything I could get my hands on. We had this like Walmart Logitech mic hooked up to the desktop computer. And there was like the, one of the earliest versions of garage band was called Mixcraft, And I would like make little weird stuff like that and just figure it out as I went along and kind of taught myself how to do that sort of thing. But I knew, and it was in part from the handful of influences I had, um, the E Street Band and Fleetwood Mac and the Rolling Stones, I knew I wanted to form a band because also I didn't have a lot of friends and I couldn't think of anything cooler than you and your friends all get to make songs together and travel around the world and you get to go on stage together and be famous together every night 
that's like those these bands are the best friends ever. So I had this thing in my head that I I knew I didn't want to be solo on stage. I knew I wanted to form a band. I knew I wanted to form a band of like all the time players that grew with each other. Um, and actually really interestingly, and this is something that I, I figured out a little bit later in life, a couple of years ago was like, why was I so gravitated towards classic rock, um, Billy Joel and Bob Dylan and Tom Petty and those guys. Why was I so gravitated towards that? Because I would look it up and on the cover of all the albums, all these guys looked so cool and they Mm. were wearing what I wanted to wear and they were writing songs about ladies. And Mm. there there were some female rock stars and they were cool, but like Joan Jett, I think at the time when I was young, she was cool because she was like this other and a lot of her career was bless her. She's incredible. But a lot of her career at that time, the conversation around women in rock was like sexual object. And that wasn't true of Tom Petty, who could just write a song about a lady and look cool on his album cover. So I felt safe as a kid and a young teen singing these songs because I'm just like, oh, that's what Tom Petty said. I'm not going to like change the pronouns in the song. That's dumb. I'm just going to sing it. And it was a safe way for me to like feel those feelings too. Mm. Um, so that's why I think I gravitated so hard towards like classic rock is when I wanted to be sad about a girl, I could go listen to a Bruce Springsteen record and like, there it was. And I didn't have to write that song for myself and take that enormous risk or whatever as a young teen. But I knew from the beginning, I wanted to form a band and I went to school one year for my freshman year of college. I went to school for sound engineering and audio technology um, in New Haven, New Haven, Connecticut, which was dumb because I didn't want to be an engineer. I wanted to be an artist. Um, but I, I, for uh, to be honest with you, I feel like sound engineer, the word engineer felt safer to explain to my parents that I was going to go to school to be a musician. Mm-hmm. And I realized very quickly that that was not the world for me. And so then I got on this tip at like 19 of, oh, if I'm a songwriter, I can just be a songwriter. You know, I don't need to go to school for music. Let me go get a backup degree. Let me go do something, which is I'm going to go be, I'm going to go study childhood education. I thought I wanted to, that was the only other thing that resonated with me was kids. I love being around kids. I love learning from kids. Um, So then I found, because also I've got a bit of an authority problem. Academia was never my place. I wanted to get in and out as fast as I could. And without doing too much research into the college, I found a a college in the Bronx that would get me in and out in four years with a bachelor and a master's and a teaching degree. And I was like, great. I went to the Bronx. Now I'm in New York. And opportunities to sing and opportunities to perform already started to throw themselves at me. And I lasted one semester and I quit and I moved to Brooklyn and I formed this cool relationship with a studio on the Lower East Side that would let me hang around and basically be an unpaid intern. And they would let me record some of my stuff with an engineer friend of mine on the off hours. So I was like 19 and 20 and like recording from like 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. and like getting up to go nanny and it was just chaotic. I needed to move to Brooklyn. So I did. And then I started working some odd jobs, um, started to form in my head what I wanted the band to look like. And then I just started going to every jam, every open mic, every live show I could to try to meet people and the players that I liked. I was just like, hey, I'm trying to form a band. I have no idea what I'm doing. Let me take you to coffee. And I would learn things from them because they were in other people's bands. And also I would ask them to be in my band. And then I kind of learned how to teach a band what I was looking for in the songs just by jumping in to rehearsal and and being like, you know, I want it to sound like this and like singing it out. And then they would do it and just kind of learned by doing. Um, But it gave me an advantage because I was in the scene three years earlier than all of my peers. Right. So while everybody was at music college or whatever for those three years, also wasting time in Western civilization class, I was on the scene. I was going to open mics. I was I was learning how to play and learning how to navigate live shows. So kind of just happened like that. I was a kid. I knew I wanted to start writing songs. 
started writing songs. I knew I wanted to form a band. I moved to New York and then I just started forcing myself to meet people. That's incredible. Thanks. Just, you know, just the, the act of learning while doing is so incredible. Um, and so I, I want to ask you specifically about like the, like your shows. Um, cause sure. I've, I've yet to be, to come to a show, but I'm coming to summer stage. So I'm very excited. You're coming um, to summer stage. Yeah. Woo. Oh my God. Summer stage is going to be a blowout, a I blowout. Can, I cannot wait. Chaos. Chaos. We haven't played our hometown in, when we get to summer stage, it'll be almost a year and a half. It'll be oh, like wow. 15 months or something since we played our hometown and we're going to pull out all the stops. I can't. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you for buying a ticket. Yeah, of course. Um, it's going to be, yeah, so I can't wait. But so, but I'm curious because I've read, I've read that you are very, you and your band are very intentional about making your shows um, like very queer affirming and, and safe spaces. And I'm curious, how do you go about doing that? There's a few different ways. I think part of it is this, um, what we were talking about just being kind of fearlessly and authentically and like playfully yourself. Uh, we try to create an environment where everybody in the audience can see themselves on stage and most of this band identifies as queer. Um, and we are just, we, 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 we try to just be ourselves in a way that not only Kellen as who Kellen is and Will as who Will is and me as who I am shine through, but also the fact that all of these people who look nothing like each other come from different places all over the world um, come from different studies of music and different walks of life. And they, we all came up differently. We can all get on stage and be a family. There's a place for everybody. And we just kind of try to fearlessly embody that. Like in real life, we are a family. We're the best friends that I, they're the best friends I've ever had. I waited my whole life to be friends with people like this. And we just try to be unabashed about that and, and kind of show everybody there's a place for everybody on the stage. There's a place for everybody in the, this audience. Um, something I wanted to mention that I, that is an overarching theme I didn't get a chance to mention earlier was being queer and standing in your queer joy is not just about queer dating, which is something I think the older generation gets confused sometimes. It's about the way that you move through the world and express yourself. It's about the permission I give myself in my fashion sense, in the sort of media I consume, in the sort of company that I keep. It's it's the way I do my hair. It's, you know, whatever. It's the way that you move through the world as well. It's to, to, to be queer. I often say that to be queer is to be unlimited, right? We're and instead of, or we're a multitude of, a multitude of things. Um, so just again, you know, I keep saying this, keep beating it over the head, but you know, we just try to really be authentically us up there and we're all individuals and somehow we find a place to come together. Also to come to a show that's fronted by a queer femme, you're going to hear queer love songs. So you hear those and in and of itself, every single song is, you know, while it's not outward, Every one of those songs is a queer anthem because it's coming from the heart and the brain of a queer person. Um, there are, you know, it, there's, there's a lot that we do in terms of um, trying to make the show accessible to everybody. Um, something that I found when I was young and I was trying to uh, like I, I was resonating with artists that were outwardly queer. Some of them kind of made the whole platform, their whole platform was their queerness. And that turned me off a little bit because it perpetuated the narrative in my head that that's it. You're queer. When in reality, queer folk are so many things we contain multitudes again we're like unlimited which is amazing and so i wanted to uh kind of be fearlessly myself in front of everyone but 
but drive home that narrative that we are so many different things. I'm also a killing singer and keys player and a great daughter and a good partner and like a pet mom and a plant mom and all this different stuff. Um, so I tried to very intentionally make a safe space through inclusion, right? Like normalizing the fact that queer folk move through the world everywhere. And, you know, now, now and then all it's, it's, we do a lot of pride month events and that's different. Then we really lean into queer history and little, you know, banter between songs and stuff. But at a general show, I mean, it's a space where you can come and we say this online, dance how you like, wear what you want, you know, derogatory or like hate infused language is 0% tolerated. You're welcome to leave the show at any time to de-stimulate. You're welcome to bring your fidget toys and your earmuffs or anything you need. We don't use strobes. We try to make it as accessible as possible. There's bubbles, there's colors. I'm wearing like a rainbow cape for half of it. We just wanna throw a really big party where you see a whole bunch of people on stage having a great time such that you feel comfortable to do the same. And it was always important to me that I wasn't running around the stage going, if you're gay in this room, put your hands up. I love you so much. I, I don't need to know you. And, and I don't want to out you in that way. If you're not comfortable, just come as you are. You're invited to come as you are. And a lot of our audience is young, creative queers, but as time has gone on, we've, um started to build the world i always envisioned which is like the super young creative queers are coming with their parents mm. so there's now like 55 year olds and 45 year olds and 60 year olds and then there's folks who are more like our age that are like 30 and some of them are queer not all of them are queer and we've got this full gamut where it's a whole bunch of folks from different walks of life different ages and because of that let's make it accessible to kids thing we also have eight-year-olds running around sometimes um, so we, we're finally starting to reach that place where you can just see everybody from every walk of life in this audience, but intentionally and innately, because it's front, this is a predominantly queer band fronted by a queer person. Um, everybody's welcome, but you're in our house. So you're not welcome if you're going to be rude, mm -hmm. <laughs> if that makes sense. But I did want to be yeah. intentional about the point here is inclusion and the point here is like normalizing that queer folk exist everywhere and do whatever they want wherever they want and shine a light on that um and i think that we've done that that's so beautiful I, love I, that. love I will say if you're a queer person listening to this and you're curious about whether or not you want to come because i also understand uh nightlife environments are scary places especially for people who are in you know minority communities it's tough um if you come to a friend show as a queer person you're going to be part of the majority and we're going to do everything we can to make you feel safe make sure you have a good time that's amazing i love that i um well i can't wait to experience it number one um <laughs> and i know i'm thinking about um just like the i do a lot of diversity equity inclusion and belonging trainings for different companies and I love that. We, uh, me too. And we have a lot of conversations around like the difference between inclusion and belonging and like, what does it look like to be included and what does it look like to belong? And Ooh, um, I just got chills. Mm, love that. Yeah. Please and teach so, me, teach me. I would. So I just was like, I, I almost was just going to offer you just different language of, because what I heard from you describing was more of a sense of belonging than a sense of inclusion. Because when I think okay. of inclusion, I think of like, we're making accommodations so you can be here, but we don't necessarily uh, need you to be here, but we're including you versus okay. like, we're creating a space of belonging, like you belong here. And so there are things here that, you know, we're we're creating a space where anyone who wants to be here can be here and fully participate and belong. So I, I just wanted to that. offer that, that, that way of thinking, just cause it's, um, cause I think sometimes we get stuck on like, it just, just like we would get stuck on diversity of it's like, okay, we have the one X, Y, Z person. So like we're diverse, but are they going to thrive in this space? Are they going right. to be included? Do they belong? And so, um, I'm always just kind of thinking about the like semantics around 
around creating safe and affirming spaces and what those look like. And semantics are important. I appreciate mm-hmm. you offering me that language. I, I look forward to implementing it. That's, that's a much better way to think about it. Thank you for that. You're welcome. My pleasure. Um, I know we joked that we could talk for five hours, but I, and, um, I do need to move us into our lightning round of questions. So these are just for fun answer as quickly as you can. They are not either or questions as lightning rounds normally are because I was told that was too binary. So here we are. Once again, (laughs) and, and instead of, or, and instead of, or I love it. I love that. Yep. Okay, so what is the name of your superhero alter ego? Uh, flying frog person. <laughs> Where is your favorite place to think? Um, by a lake, any lake. Hmm. Who is an influential queer person in your life? Freddie Mercury. What is a song that you can listen to and repeat forever? Uh, Ella Fitzgerald's version of All of Me. Mm. So a lot of states have a proposed don't say gay bills. So how do you say gay? (sighs) Leaving my house, dressed how I want, thinking how I want, talking how I want, and... uh, advocating for the things that bring me joy. Amazing answer and perfect segue. I promise you this was a pre-written question. Where do you find joy? Wow. (laughs) Um, (laughs) In my supportive friendships. Mm, That's beautiful. There's one either or I couldn't get rid of, which is bagels or donuts. Bagels. Yes, thank you. There's there's not really a quote unquote wrong answer, but obviously bagels is the right answer. It's it's easy to to make a donut and and do do the most with it. It's not easy to nail a good bagel. Yeah, that's true. That's how I feel. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, Sammy, this has been so amazing. Thank you so much for sharing and for sharing your joy and your stories with us. Thank you for coming out thank you for inviting me in oh i love that (laughs) thank you for coming